We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. So our guest speaker this evening is Lisa Buck, and she has been involved in the foster adoption world for almost 20 years as a foster and adoptive parent, as well as serving in the first foster care ombudsman in the state of Oklahoma. Lisa will share both both her personal journey as well as some lessons learned in the ombudsman in caring for Oklahoma's most vulnerable children and families. Welcome this evening and Lisa, take it away. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, NAMI is a, um, has a special place in our in our hearts as a a family, both my husband and I have worked for NAMI in the past, and um, we have absolutely um, loved this organization and our time with it through the years, and so it's just a privilege to be here with you guys this evening. Um, So Paula asked me just to kind of share a little bit about our journey um, as foster parents, and so I'll start by saying we didn't want to do this, or (laughs) <laughs> Let me start off by clearly, more clearly stating, I, I did not want to do this. Um, this was not something that was um, really uh, weighing on my heart. It was not something that I really envisioned my whole life or anything like this. Um, but um, years ago, um, we were in a Bible study group, and one of the families that was in the group with us came in and um, announced in one of the Bible studies one time that um, they felt that God had really called them into the work of foster care. <laughs> and in my loving most um, church church lady um, stance, I mouth gaping open, turned around and looked at them and said, have you lost your ever loving mind? oh my gosh, I cannot believe that you would want to do this. This is just crazy. And, uh, and they, you know, justified their position and, you know, really, you know, tried to show us their passion for it. And I didn't buy any of it. And I was like, you know what, I will pray for you and I will bring you dinner, but that's it, man. I mean, that's, that's it. You're just, you're just asking for a world of heartache. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and so the, um, they got their first placement and it was a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And so because I am true to my word, if anything else, I, um, I prepared dinner to take over there. And, um, so I, I w- walked in with dinner and, you know, um, it's, it's probably been about about 20 years ago now that Oklahoma did a um, survey and 75% of Oklahomans that participated in this survey came back and said that they thought foster children were juvenile delinquents, 75%. Now I'm going to tell you, I felt pretty, um, at this point in my life, I felt 
I felt pretty worldly and connected to things. I mean, you know, I read the newspapers and I watched Oprah. And so I felt like I was, you know, in touch with, with the world and what was going on. Um, <laughs> and, and I knew that said that, that foster children were not juvenile delinquents. I, I knew that in my head, but if I'm going to be completely honest with you guys, when I pulled up that night to take dinner to my friends, I think probably in the back of my mind, I halfway expected that three-year-old to be smoking a cigarette on the front porch. I mean, I just did not, I was so clueless as to what I was fixing to walk into in that home. Um, and when I set foot in that door, my world changed forever. I walked in and I had a big tray of food and um, immediately these two babies came and ran and grabbed my legs and I couldn't even see them below below the tray of food and I said oh hello Miss Lisa so happy to see you let me put down this food and I'll give you some lovings you know and I lowered the pan of food and they're looking up at me were these two babies that were the spitting image of my children spitting image And suddenly I thought there, but by the grace of God, walk I. Um, and then in that moment, I also realized how very little I knew. So um, I, we came alongside that family. They were um, a youth minister and his wife um, at a church. And um, they were gone a lot, you know, with, with youth trips and stuff. And so we became their respite providers and, um, and these kids were with us, um, probably two, three nights a week. Um, and, and they just became part of our family. Now, um, I will tell you that that case ended in the worst possible way. It was an absolutely traumatic um, horrendous ending to a case that, that could possibly happen. And then when that happened, um, my husband and I were already in the process of becoming foster parents ourselves because we had been so moved by these children and our eyes have been open to the circumstances of the world that Oprah never talked about. Um, and what was going on in our state of Oklahoma. Um, and so we just had decided by this point to become foster parents ourselves. But when this case ended so horribly, um, it really put us at a crossroads. Um, and at about the same time is when the lawsuit, the rumblings of the, of the latest lawsuit against DHS was happening. Um, and we were put at a crossroads because my husband and I are both real advocates and at, at heart and by nature. And so we could either um, advocate to and join the forces of the lawsuit and advocate to tear DHS down brick by brick. Um, or we could continue on as foster parents to try to change the system from the inside. And I will tell you 
that had we selected joining the lawsuit and working to tear um, DHS down, it would have been a much easier choice. Would have been a much easier choice. Um, but we continued on and became um, foster parents because we wanted to change the system differently. We wanted things to be different. Um, so to that end, we became the very first um, family in the state of Oklahoma to work with a contracted agency in a pilot project. This was when um, contracted agencies were not a thing and they were gonna try it out. And so we were the first family in the state to do that. Um, and then um, years later, um, I became the first appointed foster care ombudsman for the state. Um, and my job in that role was to solve issues and grievances that foster parents had um, with DHS in order to make their, um, their process easier and to give them a voice in the system. So um, I came a long way from that first um, conversation with my friends of saying, you have lost your ever loving mind going down this path um, to where we came through the years and where, where we've um, advocated through the years. Um, so that's just kind of an overview of the history. And um, I will tell you that if you're, if you're on this call um, and you have not, I'll, I'll cover a lot of um, different things to do, but I really wanna give this shout out early that I was probably eight years in as a foster parent before I took the NAMI basics class. Um, and I will tell you that was a game changer. If you have not taken the NAMI basics class, please take that class. It doesn't matter if you're a foster parent, adoptive parent, any kind of parent, that is, that is a wealth of knowledge and resources that I had no idea existed. And it was such a huge benefit. So really kudos, that's a strong, strong program. So I highly recommend that um, as you're going forward with any of your parenting journeys. But I wanted to talk a little bit um, about the kiddos that we served um, in foster care. And I wanted to try to um, address some of the top questions and issues that I ran into um, pertaining to mental health, particularly as the foster care ombudsman. And then I'm, I'm happy to open it up and answer any questions that you have. Currently, I am the vice president of marketing and development at North Care. North Care is a community mental health um, clinic in um, Oklahoma City, but we also hold the contract for comprehensive home-based services through DHS. Um, and intensive safety services um, with DHS. And with those DHS programs, we cover 47 counties um, in the state. So um, I, can, I can answer any questions um, as, as, you go for, as we go forward too. So um, anyway, the, what I wanted to spend a little bit of time with is um, we, when we started our foster journey, um, we have four daughters of our own. And so when we started taking foster children, because of that first case, as heartbreaking as it was, it taught me so much on how to advocate um, appropriately for the kids that were in my, in my care. Um, 
I, I learned a tremendous amount with that, with that case. And so I, I know that those kids were placed in our lives for a reason. And so what I did was, um, <laughs> when I started taking placements, because we had four girls of our own, um, and because of what all I had learned in the, in the first case and where our family was, and when I, when we would get called to take a placement, I had a list of about 12 questions that I would ask. And I will tell you, and, and I tell foster parents this all the time, I said no more than I said yes. Um, because, you know, my first and foremost priority was my four, four children that were in the house for their safety and protection. Um, and so there were certain cases and kids that I, I just couldn't do. Um, and then I learned also um, with that first case, um, what I could do and what I could accept as a, um, as a foster parent. And so, um, which is kind of strange, but what I, what I learned and what I could do better was with the shocking and heinous cases. So we ended up taking some of the most critical kids um, in the state it's a backwards way of thinking, but it's, it's what I could, what I could do and, and what I, how I felt most beneficial. So, um, we started down our journey and we ended up, um, so we had four girls and we ended up with, um, going through the process and through the years we had like seven more girls. And so we were like in the girl zone, man, we had the girl thing figured out and, um, and we were, we were rocking the girl. Um, the girl thing. My poor husband would get up in the morning, take a testosterone shot, and move on with his day because he he needed something to balance us out over here. Um, but you know, this had been going on for several years. I'd gotten my 12 questions really honed in on who we were going to take and who we weren't going to take. Um, I knew the red flags to look for in a case. Um, and I knew the questions to ask by this point. And compared to where I was when we first started, I was very educated. Um, I, I got up to speed quickly on, on these cases, uh, the, the hidden words um, to look for, um, the hidden descriptions to look for in kiddos. I mean, I, I had a, a system pretty well down. And so we had just transitioned some girls out of our house and decided that we needed a little break as a family. And so we were going to take a few months off um, and regroup and then catch our breaths and start again. And so um, <laughs> that lasted about three weeks and um, they called and they said, listen, listen, we know that you're on a break um, and we really want to respect that. But we have these two little boys that are um, at the shelter. Would you just come volunteer with them? And just come volunteer and hang out and play with them. And I said, you know, I don't really do boys. I got, I got this girl thing, you know, and, um, I, you know, I don't do it. So I'll come volunteer and love on them and, and play with them and everything, but don't hoodwink me into these boys because, you know, I'm a, I'm a girl mom. We got the girl thing down. And they said, okay, no problem. So um, I went for my first time to volunteer with these two little boys and they were one and three. And uh, yeah, just to just turn one and just turn three. And um, I played 
all one afternoon with them. And um, the the one that was just turning three um, had blonde hair and these huge blue eyes. And he was a stinker. I mean, I knew that much, right? Um, just from playing with him in the afternoon. But um, when I got ready to leave, he crawled up in my lap and he snuggled me big. And he says, I want to go home with you. And I don't know how you tell a three-year-old, I don't do boys. I just do girls. You know, I just, I have a girl thing going. And so I said, well, you can't go home with me today, but I'll be back. I'm going to come back and play. And so I went the next day and I played for a few more days with them. And every day, this little one would look up at me with those big blue eyes and say, I want to go home with you. And so um, I, you know, mentioned this to our caseworker and she said, you ought to take him home. You know, boys are great. Boys are fun. You ought to try boys. They're all, they're great. Boys are awesome. And I said, I don't know. You know, I kind of got the girl thing going. I don't, I don't know anything about boys. I don't have boy toys. I don't have anything. I just don't know. And she said, and I said, but I'll review the case. So I reviewed the case. And you know how I said that I had become educated about how to read a case and the red flags that were in the case. There were all kinds of red flags in this case. Now, when I say red flags, they were red flags to me personally. They were red flags that these are not the type of cases that I take. Um, these are not the type of kiddos that I take. Um, this is not the type of case that I, that I usually get involved with. And there were a ton of red flags. And yet when I looked at those blue eyes, my heart melted. And so um, I made the decision and my husband made the decision to choose the blue eyes over the red flags. And that was probably one of the most critical life altering decisions that we've ever made. Um, we took these babies in and although I could read the case file and I could see the red flags, I had no idea what journey we were fixing to go on. None. Um, those blue eyes um, broke my heart and tested my will um, really for the last uh, 12 years. They, um, that, the baby is, uh, really pretty good. He's, he's a great kiddo. Um, the one that was three, um, is a challenge today and he's 15. Um, that case went on for three and a half years. And the only reason that we hung on as long as we did, because we had every 
reason in the world to give up on these kiddos. Um, and there's, there's not anybody that would have faulted us if you, if you saw the, what all we went through with them. But the only reason we hang we hung on is because Steve and I never got to the point of quit on the same day. I think if we'd both gotten to the point of quit on the same day, um, it would have been done. We we try to be really respectful of uh, where the other one is on this journey and and where they are. Uh, and really, we only got to the point of absolute quit um, twice. Steve did um, once, and um, he had the kids buckled in the car. He was done, and he had them buckled in the car, and he was taking them back to the shelter. He was just finished, and I said. You know, we can't take them back tonight because it's the weekend. But if this is what we want to do, you know, we'll we'll take them back on on Monday. And um, we told our children that they just needed more care than what we knew how to do. And and we were not equipped to to care for these boys. And um, our second daughter launched into this impassioned. She was about 12 at the time, launched into this impassioned sermon is really what she did and called us completely out on it and said, you know, we could not give up on these kids and how dare we even think about it. And that if we gave up on them, it was just going to be a series of people giving up on them. And just because things were tough, we were not going to give up on them. That as a family, we did not do that. And I mean, she launched into things we didn't even know she had in her. And so we kind of sat there as the big people in the room and said, okay, well, all right, I guess we'll hang on a little bit longer. And then I got to the point of quit one day um, and it was um, before church. And I, I was at the time um, co-teaching a class on foster care and adoption at our church. And um, I, I reached my point. I would reach my breaking point and um, told Steve, I said, I'm, I'm done. Cannot do this another day. I am done. And he said, okay, well, we'll, you know, move forward tomorrow. Um, and so I go to this class because I got to co-teach this class and I'm sitting in the back of the class and literally I am making list of everything that I have to pack for these boys um, because it was too hard. And I was done and I was making lists of what all I needed to do and who all I needed to call and what all I needed to pack. And, um, and we're, we're watching a video in this class on, on adoption. And I'm only half listening to it because I have to listen to it to know when to turn it off and when to restart the restart it. And so I'm only halfway listening to it. And the guy on the video says, when you enter into the world of foster and adoption, you need to expect, expect spiritual warfare. And I heard warfare because that's where I was right then at that moment. And I keyed in on that. And he said, because really when those children are in a dysfunctional situation or uh, with their family, or if they're in um, an orphanage or in a shelter, that's exactly where Satan wants them. And so he can do whatever he wants. But when you intervene, you need to expect spiritual warfare. 
because you're intervening on behalf of these children. It's like, oh, okay. So I came home and Steve said, okay, so what do we do tomorrow? And I said, well, they're staying. And he said, they are. And I said, yeah, it's not him, it's Satan. And Steve looked at me and said, well, I'm kind of pretty sure they're one in the same right now. <laughs> so we, we, I, I tell you that just because I'm, I just want to be really transparent that these children that we have, whether we biologically birth them or not, um, they are, you're in a really hard situation um, with them. And so always be respectful of your spouse's position and your own position, as well as to how you can benefit and how you can help these kids. But it's okay to, um, to get to the point of quit and work through it one way or the other. Um, because it's, it's a, it's a difficult, frustrating situation. Now, I will tell you that, uh, when we started down this path, um, with Isaiah, we had a lot of resources personally. Um, we had a lot of connections and a lot of resources. Steve at the time was um, a um, deputy director for um, OKDMH, um, HSAS, um, the Department of Mental Health. Um, and so he had connections. Um, I had a lot of connections from, from my career. Um, we can make calls and, and get some answers, but we can make calls and get some answers that a lot of people couldn't um, and didn't know where to go and didn't know where to call and didn't know how to find help. Now, unfortunately in our state, our resources are limited for families and children going through significant mental health issues. Um, we've made some progress through the years, but we're limited. And so to be able to know what limited resources are there and how to access them is a difficult thing. And that's where places like NAMI and um, I think I saw um, the family uh, Oklahoma Family Connections. I'm sorry, I, for, I always mess up your name. Um, network. But they do, network, thank you. Um, they do great jobs in helping you locate these resources and stuff that you need. Because if you've not ever been, we were connected and didn't know the resources. And so you've got to have help to know those resources. And again, if you haven't taken NAMI Basics, they supply you with a ton of resources. Um, to help with anything from IEPs to um, behavioral techniques and, and different things like that. It was, that was a real blessing of a class for me. Um, but even with, even with our knowledge and our collection, thank you for putting that up in the chat. Um, they do a great job. And even with our connections and stuff, we could not and did not know how to adequately help Isaiah. So let, let me repeat that again. My husband was the deputy director at the Department of Mental Health 
and I had a child who was diagnosed with significant mental health issues and shaken baby syndrome, and we could not access services and help. We didn't know where to turn. It's a hard road. So find as many resources and connections as you can in order to help you and your family. Um, so here's some of the things that we learned. So let me just tell you, Isaiah um, has been diagnosed with um, PTSD, um, ADHD, anxiety disorder, um, and shaken baby syndrome. Um, we have um, sought lots and lots and lots of um, help in different formats. Um, his um, pediatrician is Deb Shropshire um, over um, Fostering Hope Clinic at OU. Um, Deb has been with us from the beginning um, when we first got placement of the boys. And um, when she testified at their termination trial, she testified in court that Isaiah was, but at, at that time she had seen about 18,000 kids through her clinic. And she testified in court that Isaiah was one of the five worst children that she had come in contact with, that he was almost feral um, when he first came to us. And he was. Um, and so she stood beside us on our journey of trying to get through the case and trying to find help and trying to get the testing and tried to figure out what was going on because it took us years to get to the diagnoses um, and, and to what was going on and to what medications may work and what medications may not work and, and things like that. Um, my wisdom for those of you who are going through similar things um, with your children or foster children or adoption children is, um, you know, don't, don't give up and don't get to the point where you are accepting what your parent gut is telling you is, is not really acceptable. Because at the end of the day, if that kid has been with you from since birth or for any period of time, nobody really knows that kid better than you do. And so you can advocate for those kids. And don't be afraid that just because you're seeing one therapist or one psychiatrist right now, um, after a period of time, now we'll tell you that takes it, you got to give them a minute because it takes a while for treatments and things to start working. So this isn't a just after a few weeks thing, but after a few months, if you're not beginning to see some progress in different areas, it's okay to say this isn't working for us. It's okay to tell your provider that and see if they have any other solutions. And it's okay to tell your provider that and move on to somebody else. But the key is to move on to someone else, right? Don't stop and don't give up pursuing the resources and the help that you and your children need. Um, so here's a couple of things that, that I learned um, along the way. That's a big one. Um, 
I changed providers multiple times with Isaiah and, and not because there was anything wrong with them. I, you know, would have that conversation with providers after several, several months and say, I don't feel like that this is, this is working for us. Are we not doing something right? Or is there something that we're missing in this? And um, had many providers say, I, I just don't know what to do with him. I, I just don't know how to help you. Um, and, and that's okay, right? That's frustrating as a parent, but it's okay because at least, you know, this didn't work. I need to move on to, to the next thing. Um, and I read every book that there was to read. Um, Karen Purvis and, and I slept together every night. Um, we, I had her books with me and fell asleep reading her books um, continuously on, on trying to help. Um, one of my favorite stories uh, to tell, and um, Deb Shropshire tells this story as well, and a lot of her talks and everything that she does is, um, I had read um, one of Karen Purvis's books, and, um, and it talked about the importance to have a safe place for a child to um, release their emotions, and then it was okay to let them. Now, you have to understand, Isaiah came to us at the age of three proficient in the F word. He could use it as a noun, verb, adjective, adverb. It doesn't, it didn't matter. He, the boy could use the word. Um, he also um, had very limited um, fine motor skills, um, but he could use, he could flip the bird uh, with no problem to anybody and everybody. That was one fine motor skill he was um, exceptional at. So, um, so it was just a constant um, um, issue with him trying to, you know, when you have to take them into church and say, um, it's not if, but when we drop the F bomb here in Sunday school. So just kind of have to figure that out and tell those other parents, you know, what you need to tell them, because I got to have that 40 minute break for myself. <laughs> and so, um, but so I had read this Karen Purvis book on uh, letting a child, you know, do the release and, um, and having a safe place and everything. So I thought I was brilliant. And so I created this um, tent and it was filled with pillows and books and stuffies and everything. And so I made this huge deal out of it to Isaiah. And I was like, Isaiah, this is our happy tent. And when we feel mad and when we feel frustrated and angry and we want to yell, we can go in this into our, our tent and we can yell into the pillows and hit the pillows and talk to our stuffies. And when we come out, we'll be happy. And this is our happy tent. And so because I had read the books and because I was so on top of things, we practiced the happy tent. We practiced going in the happy tent and we practiced hitting the pillows and we practiced doing everything. I was so proud of myself. It's probably the most therapeutic thing I've ever come up with in my life. And so I had this beautiful little happy tent. And so when he first, the first time that I could see him start to rage and everything, I was like, okay, Isaiah, it's time for the happy tent. Are we ready to use the happy tent? And he turns around and looks at me and says, F the happy tent. That's so, I thought, well, that didn't work, did it? And so um, actually through the years, that's become one of uh, Deb Shropshire's favorite stories. And she's 
has always said, I'm just going to have that stitched on the pillow one day. I'm just going to have that stitched on the pillow F the happy tent. And so um, a few years ago, I gave that to her for her birthday as a pillow stitched with that saying, saying on it. Um, because even, even those things that you read about and you think this, these are the most um, perfect solutions and perfect answers may not work for, for your kiddo that you have. Um, and so you keep trying and you keep pushing forward to find um, different answers um, and, and to try different things because you never know really, you know, what might work and what might not. So we went through a, a gamut of um, therapies, um, therapists, um, psychiatrists. Now, I will tell you that um, if you are a parent with a child with, with mental health concerns, um, and I say it's okay to switch, it, it is okay to switch, but also be educated in your switch and know that there's only about 12 child psychiatrists in the entire state of Oklahoma. So you're limited on your ability to switch there. Um, and so... And, and make sure that you understand the role of a, of a psychiatrist versus a therapist. So your psychiatrist is just, just in charge of medication management. They may do a little talking and a little therapeutic, but their main role is medication management. Um, your therapist is in charge of your talk therapy, your play therapy, um, PCIT therapy, um, you know, all the different therapeutic type styles, but your day-to-day -day behavioral management, um, therapeutic techniques, that's, that's through your therapist. Um, they're more easily accessible, although I will tell you, we have a huge shortage of those right now in Oklahoma as well. Um, but so make sure that if you switch, and it, again, it's okay to switch, but be mindful of the fact that you're limited on the number of psychiatrists, especially um, that are available to you in the state. So um, I, Isaiah is um, now 15. He is functioning very well in school. Um, he is um he's a funny little dude i mean he he keeps us in stitches um with the things that he says because he is very um his autism is very um prevalent at times and so he's very um he's very dry in things he wants everything very set forth and and very um, straight. But we finally got to the point where we got to a good psychiatrist that we really liked that worked really well with us um, and um, has stayed with us. Um, we've had him for, I don't know, probably, I don't know, a good number of years. Um, but anyway, we, we've been really um, pleased with that. We've got him to a really stable place. Um, but we never, we never quit and we never gave up. So, you know, I mentioned NAMI basics, um, for, for a good class to take. Um, 
DMH has uh, wraparound services that are really great for families. And I'm just going to drop these names so that you can know to ask about them. I mean, I don't know if they're right for your family or not, but they're, they're great to inquire about and to ask about. Um, the, um, as far as if you're a foster parent, um, they're, and, and even post-adoptions are working on getting more support post-adoptions um, right now. Um, I was talking to um, Deb just last week that she's expanding the therapeutic aspect in, um, for post-adoptions so that you'll have more support and more help with post-adoptions. Um, and so there should be a unit there that can help with um, therapeutic options and stuff um, post-adoptions. Um, enhanced foster care. If you're a foster care um, provider, you can ask if that's an option for you. Um, but there are a lot of different services that you can tap into. Um, North Care has a whole family and children's um, division that accepts um, sooner care and um, they we help with the really um, complex um, issues. And we also have um, crisis response. And so if you are experiencing a crisis with your child, um, you can call in, um, either our number directly and we can um, send out a crisis response unit. 988 is a great um, resource as well. Right now in our state, we're really blessed to have that. And you can call them and they'll send out somebody that's close to you um, to help with the crisis response. Um, but there's a, there are, um, there is more help now than there has been in our state in a, in a long time. We still have a long way to go, right? You know, Oklahoma is always seems to be at the, the bottom of the totem pole and everything. And mental health is, is unfortunately one of those areas as well. Um, but the key for you as families is to know who to go to ask, right? I, you know, and you have a lot of people on this call right now that can um, answer those questions for you, that can provide resources, that can tell you um, if you need an, um, an inpatient facility for your child, who, who, what are your options there? Um, there's only um, a couple of outpatient um, facilities, um, day treatment facilities for our children in the state, but they can guide you in, in at least showing you what is available to you as a parent. And the most important thing is for you to know that you're not alone, that these organizations on this call with you right now are here to help and support you. Sometimes you just need to vent to somebody and they're they're great for that as well, too. Um, and if you keep pushing forward, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You just got to get to the light. Um, I wasn't sure that we'd, we'd be where we are today with Isaiah. I didn't, I didn't really know if we could get to this point in this status of um, well-being that we are. Now we still have our challenges. I still really wonder if he'll ever be able to live on his own. Um, 
I may send him to live with Paula. Um, <laughs> um, but he is so much better. He's so much better than he ever has been. And he's functioning really well and he's doing really well. And so right now I'm using these same resources that help me find um, mental wellness for him and mental security for our, our family to also say, okay, what's the next steps? You know, what do we do when he turns 18 and where can he live and what can we do? And what does that look like? Because these organizations are filled with people who have wisdom, who've been there and done that and who have lived experiences, which is better than anything usually that you can find anywhere else, Googling or otherwise, because they, they've walked through it and walked through it in our state and know, know the, the path to which to direct you. Um, but um, it's difficult. And I, I'm glad you guys are reaching out and I'm glad you guys are working to get educated and seeking resources. And I can tell you as somebody who's walked the path that, that there is hope and there is hope um, and things will get better, then they'll get worse and then they'll get better again. I mean, that's the cycle of living with a loved one with mental illness. Um, but but things will, things will be better. And daily we are um, improving things in our state um, to make things better for you. I, I will make a comment. It is miraculous to change in your children from the time that you took them into your home to where they are now. It's just amazing. And all of the resources and supports that you have provided to see that change. Just don't quit seeking. I had something, I had something just deep inside of me that was just driving me that this wasn't just ADHD and this just wasn't PTSD. I mean, I knew that a lot of it was um, PTSD um, and, and don't be afraid to be creative with different things too. You know, um, the, uh, one of the things, and Isaiah will still talk about it today. I don't, and this was a, this was a desperation thing. This certainly didn't come from a Karen Purvis um, th thing at all, but we lived for years with an entity in our house in an Isaiah's little mind called Monster Jerry. And Isaiah had been sexually abused at a young age and the only identity he could attach to it was Monster Jerry. And we don't to this day know who Monster Jerry was or, or anything like that. Um, but he was very, he was very much able to articulate and draw for us what Monster Jerry did to him. Um, and so we lived with Monster Jerry for years, years we lived with Monster Jerry. And um, it provoked night terrors and, and <laughs> night threats. And I don't know what came over me one night. It was probably sleep deprivation. But I grabbed a, a can of um, room spray, you know, that, you know, smells. And, um, and I'll... <laughs> I, I wrapped a piece of paper around it and wrote um, monster spray. And so every night we would spray monster spray in our house. And it was just, you know, air freshener. Um, but we would spray the monster spray 
And dadgum, if that wasn't the thing that worked. I mean, you know, we had tried, you know, all of these other things. And he still talks about that. Remember when you got the monster spray and sprayed them all the monsters out of our house? Remember that, mama? Remember that? I mean, who knows? So don't, Mm -hmm. sometimes when you get tired and you're in survival mode, um, you lose your creativity. Don't lose your creativity and thinking what um, different things that might, might work because the happy tent sure didn't work for me, but the monster spray did. Uh, can a grandma who is a caregiver, but not a foster parent, take the NAMI classes you spoke about? And yes, you, yes. you absolutely can. Yeah, And no, again, I was eight years in. My husband was at the department. I, I was working for NAMI myself at the time when I took the NAMI basics class and was blown away with how much I learned. I mean, it, and, and. I, I really cannot say enough about that. It's a, it's a tremendous resource. I don't know how often y'all do those, Paula. Um, just occasionally. I mean, uh, we're getting ready to offer one to family support providers, and then we'll be offering it again to be open to others as well in the near future. So, and I'm kind of one of the ones that teaches that, in fact, so. So they can check on your website for mm -hmm. it. Check or, on the website or reach out to be either one. And if I need a teaching partner, I'll reach out to you, Lisa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, you know, I will tell you, and this is a whole nother thing for, and really the, um, the Oklahoma Network is, is really more equipped for this. But um, the when you have a child with behavioral or mental health issues and you're dealing with the school system, that's a whole nother barrel of monkeys um, to, to deal with and know that there's help and support. I just got through talking to a, a, a foster parent who said that their child could not function in, uh, in public schools. And I remember thinking that myself at one time, and we even went to a private school for a while and came back to public schools. But I'm going to tell you that there are um, places there there you can get help and advocacy support to build a strong IEP um, for children who are experiencing behavioral and mental health. And do not let a school tell you that they are not equipped to deal with the child. Do not. Do not. By state law, they have to deal with your child. And, um, and so the Disability Law Center, the um, Family Advocacy Network, there's, there's a lot of, um, or several groups that really help with that. Um, but that is not, um, that's not an option. And, but I just fielded that question from a, from a foster uh, parent right before this call. A uh, couple of questions, Lisa. How can we educate the Hispanic community about this? And as a Hispanic family, I'm interested in becoming a foster parent. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so, um, oh gosh. Um, on the, uh, I don't have it right here with me, but on, um, you can go to the DHS website and click, there's all kinds of buttons to click for um, becoming a foster parent and, um, and they can guide you through that. 
um, and Hispanic speaking foster parents are a huge um, need. So thank you for wanting to step up in that area. And I, I don't know, um, Paula, on um, as basics done for um, in Spanish as well. Um, we have the materials. We do not have a trained facilitator at this time, but if somebody's bilingual and interested in becoming trained and, and becoming a teacher, we would love to visit with you about that. So, yes. So Lisa, thank you from the bottom of my heart for just sharing your personal story, for your knowledge, your experiences, your resources, your information. It was so rich and so full. And I have to tell you, I was a little emotional as you spoke about <laughs> some of your experiences, just because it, it's just, just so personal. And I, I love your story and, and love seeing the success and all of this. So this is Teresa. I don't want to interrupt you, but um, what resources do you have for young adult age post-adopt children? There are things for foster children aging out, but what supports are available for post-adoption young adults with trauma and mental illness that still cause challenges? Yeah, so um, NAMI Basics is, is a great one too. That's That covers young adults as well. Um, but um, as I mentioned, they're, they're shoring up the post-adoption um, supports at DHS. And so I would call post-adoptions um, and ask to speak with David Johnson is the new person that's over that, um, the post-adoptions and that's trying to build therapeutic supports. Um, I, I would ask um, for him and ask, um, tell him that, that you heard that they were taking a more therapeutic approach to um, post adoptions and could um, could he point you in the right direction of getting that? Thank you, Teresa. If y'all get away from this and you think, oh, I should have asked because that's the way I am all the time. Oh, I should have asked. Um, well, email Paula. She knows how to get in touch with me, and um, and I'll respond to you guys. Oh, let me just say one one more thing. I'm sorry. Um, if you are, a, this is the number one. Um, Thing that I had as a foster care ombudsman that I just wanted to share is related to mental health. If you are a foster parent, you do not have to have a referral from DHS to get mental health services for your child. Um, for some reason, that's a misconception amongst um, a lot of foster parents is I have to wait for my worker to do a referral before I can get an evaluation before I can get help. That's false. If you are a foster parent and you are struggling with your kiddo, um, you you start calling around. Call Northcare. Call uh, Red Rock. Call um, call around and see who accepts sooner care and who has openings. And you you take care of that yourself. You do not have to wait for your uh, worker to make a referral for that. Take that into your own hands. And if you need help knowing who to call, that's where NAMI and the others can come in to help you. Thank you. So, so see, it's all those little, all those little pieces of experience and knowledge that you have. Thank you for sharing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. 
Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.